Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I'm joined by a guest named Chase Warrington. He's a remote work advocate who's been living in Valencia, Spain for the past five years. Chase, how's it going, man? Hey, good to see you, man. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, and you're uh, calling in from Valencia right now, right? Uh, well, I actually, I'm up in uh, Germany at the moment, but yeah, I've been calling Spain home for almost the last five years. So that's, that's typically where I call uh, La Casa. Yeah. And I think you told me you were doing a little bit of travel uh, for the rest of 22. What's the, what's the plan looking like? Man, I'm excited. You know, I, I came to Europe to, uh, to get a feel for just traveling all the time and constantly taking advantage of cheap flights and trains and stuff on a longer, um, you know, a longer stint than just coming in for 90 days at a time. And then, you know, COVID promptly hit a couple of years later and kind of stunted that. So this year I'm back to taking advantage of it. And, um, my wife and dog and I packed up and, uh, moved around and decided we're going to, we're going to drive around Europe and, uh, and just explore some different places. So currently spending a couple months up in Germany, spend a, spend a few months in other parts of the Alps and, um, France and, uh, and then have, you know, have a little bit of an open road ahead of us, um, as far as what the rest of the year looks like, but, you know, just, just a lot of exploring and getting back to what I love doing, which is just traveling and seeing new places and kind of immersing into different cultures and such. So, uh, we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a short-term plan, I guess. That's awesome. So, uh, for all the listeners out there who are interested in Spain, living in Spain, uh, you know, obviously we talk a lot about Latin America here uh, at My Latin Life, but Spain is, of course, Latin too. And I think we'll do a bit of a deep dive on Spain and, and just talk about what it's like to live there. Um, so if anyone is interested in Spain, this will be the episode for you. Love it, man. Sounds great. Plenty to, plenty to share. I mean, it's, an awesome, it's such an awesome and incredibly diverse culturally and uh, geographically and just so many different things to love about about Spain. And I, I'm not someone that grew up like in love with the Spanish culture, you know, infatuated by going to Spain. I, I, Spain kind of chose me to be honest. And then I just kind of fell in love with it as, mm. as time went on. So yeah, man, I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. And, uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So what do you mean by that, that Spain shows you? Yeah. So I was looking for an opportunity to come to Europe, um, and spend more than just 90 days here. Um, like I, you can get the Schengen visa, which just allows you to hop in and out. Um, and, and, but you only have 90 days and then you have to be out for 90 days. And I was getting tired of doing that, like literally tired. Like I was moving around digital nomading with, uh, with a 50 pound Siberian Husky and my, my wife and her business on the road. And we were like, you know, this is fun, but it's not really sustainable. Um, so we started looking into long-term visas for Europe and found this visa in Spain that worked for us, um, which is called the non-lucrative visa. And, um, and so we applied for it and got in it really at the time, like we're talking five, six years ago, seemed like the only option. It was the only option that I could find that would allow us to come and live for a longer period of time in Europe. I now know that to be uh, false. There are other options. They're just a little bit more obscure, but this one fell into our lap. We said, Oh, cool. That'll, that's our ticket in. And, um, and then we, and we got it. So, uh, you know, we got the visa, we were able to come live in Spain for a year and then able to renew it every, uh, every year after that. 
um, for up to five years. So that's, uh, that's how it kind of chose me. You know, I, I, it wasn't as if I was like, I need to go live in Spain. It was more like, I want to go live in Europe. Where can I go? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and Spain picked me in that way. That's cool. So, uh, you've been doing that non-lucrative visa. Um, you've successfully renewed that like three times at least. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. So I, I misspoke a second ago when I said every year you get it for one year initially. And then at the end of that year, you can choose to renew it. If you renew it, it's good for two years after that. And then, so then at the end of your third year, you can do it once more, which would get you to five years, um, which I have done all those things now at this point. And, uh, and then the next step is to, is to convert to uh, permanent, what's called permanent residency. Um, and no that's, way. So that's the, that's the next, uh, the next step on the path. That's pretty cool. So the, the non-lucrative, which is basically kind of like a digital nomad visa, um, maybe you could break it down, but that eventually leads to permanent residency then, eh? Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's like, there's multiple paths into Spain in that way. And, and particularly for anybody that's coming from Latin America, it can actually be really easy. Like, as in, if you were like born and raised, if you have a Latin American passport, they actually make it really simple and expedite the whole pro you can do that whole process in just two years if you're coming mm -hmm. from Latin America. Um, for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean the, the non-lucrative visa was designed as a pensioners visa, like a retirees visa. So basically they say, you know, okay, you have a fixed income, which for a lot of people would be like their pension or social security. And you want to come live in Spain. You're not going to take a Spanish job because you're not allowed to work with this visa. Um, but you can come here and spend your money. That's cool. <laughs> the government's happy with that. Uh, so they created this visa called the non-lucrative visa years and years and years ago. Um, but that times have changed, you know, obviously, and it wasn't really designed for remote workers. Um, it wasn't designed for people that would be working and earning an income from abroad. Um, so now they've come back now and built out a, an actual digital nomad visa, which unfortunately I just don't know a ton about because I haven't had to deal with it. But what they're trying to do now is funnel those types of people like digital nomads like ourselves um, into more of a uh, into more of the digital nomad visa. Um, it, and that's a little bit confusing because like there's some gray area out there. It's not like completely built yet. So it's sort of like this plane that's being built in the air that you can somehow kind of get on, but somehow not still. And it depends on the consulate that you're applying from. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some gray area in this space right now. Interesting. Yeah. And so, uh, could you give just like a brief synopsis of what the non-lucrative visa is and, uh, how it works so that, you know, anyone out there listening could kind of think about if they, if the, their situation might fit it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I mean, generally they're looking to make sure that you can support yourself, financially. They don't define exactly what that number is, but um, I've been told somewhere around like 1,800 to 2,200 euros per month, um, which is roughly the same as dollars right now, uh, it would be sufficient for an individual. And then like 2,500 to 3,000 for a couple um, would, be, would be sufficient. So somewhere in that range, but it's not clearly defined. Um, they also right. want to make sure you're not some sort of criminal. So you got to do like a a background check, um, and uh, they you have to get like some medical paperwork done. They make make sure you're not sick, so you can really just kind of think about it as like they want to know that you're not coming as some sort of burden to the country. That you're basically coming, you're self sustainable. You have health insurance, um, you know, international health insurance. 
that will cover you and, uh, and, and you're not a criminal and you're not sick. And, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. about it. Um, there's a, there's a bullet point, you know, some bullet points that you, paperwork things you need to check and fill out and stuff like that and get translated. But, um, all in all, I mean, my wife and I set aside like six months to go through the process and get everything. And we kind of took our time with that. I mean, I wouldn't say that was like an exceptionally long, like, you know, we, we, if we could have rushed it, we could have done it quicker. If we, we could have taken our time and done it a little bit slower, but you know, it's, it's a multi-month process. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and Spanish bureaucracy is not, not exactly known for efficiency. So, uh, you know, you gotta be patient with the process as well. Right. And so the 2000 bucks ish a month, is that uh, passive income or can that be earned income? You can just say, look, I have a job. I'm here's the money hitting my bank account from my remote job. Boom. More or less, um, you know, there's, there is no, there's not a lot of def- clear definition around this. So you can actually use all sorts of, um, and, and I should also say like, I'm obviously no expert, like this is just my experience. And I, mm-hmm. and it also varies a lot. Consulate to consulate, um, is something I've been told by the actual pros out there. So like I was applying in DC, if somebody else applying in Chicago or San Francisco might get like a, to- a fairly different experience. Um, so that's, that should be known as well. But, um, yeah, I, that's uh, good to point out. yeah, yeah, it's definitely, and it's, it, it seems to be more and more the case with this transition to the digital nomad visa. So I think that's, that's very important, but yeah, I mean, basically you can show all forms of income. So like when we went, we showed our savings accounts, we showed our credit card, like, uh, like that fact that we had access to credit card state, uh, what it would call it, like credit card debt or whatever. Like I could access $10,000 on this credit card if I really needed to. We showed all, we were advised to show all of that. So we, and I got a letter from my company saying, Hey, this person's getting paid and like, here's his salary. Um, so we were showing like, Hey, look, we have plenty of money to come in and sustain ourselves. And, and that's the most important thing. That's what they're looking for. Yeah. I've actually, uh, this is the first time I'm hearing about, um, including, credit card balances or credit card limits as part of uh, proof of means. But it makes sense because if you have the capacity to take on like ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on a credit card, that does show some ability to, you know, pay bills if uh, access to cash was limited for whatever reason. So I could definitely see that helping. So another yeah. another another reason to just, you know, have a card laying a credit card laying around with zero balance. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, um, I, I thought it was weird too. <laughs> like at first I was like, is that real? Like that'll actually count for something. Um, but you know, apparently it did. And they, they look at right. everything. Well, cause in other countries there's, they don't really have as much access to credit cards like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. uh, to, to us, it, to us, it seems like nothing, but in other countries, it's actually a pretty big deal to have maybe a 10,000 limit credit card. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And another interesting thing that you pointed out was that the process can be different depending on what consulate consulate or embassy that you go to. So even within the same country in the US, the US probably has hmm, how many how many Spanish consulates? Probably yeah. five at least. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say somewhere somewhere between like 5 and 10. Like uh, if I was going to yeah. throw a number out, I might say like 8. And it's definitely been my experience uh, not only with Spain but with pretty much any country that things can change consulate to consulate. So we see a lot of that where um, 
people are looking to get visas for Latin America. They're trying to get residency permits for Latin America. And actually what consulate you go to in the States, the requirements can be slightly different. The The lead time, the processing time can be different. So uh, just something to be aware of for people. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, I think. And what one thing connected to that is with the non-lucrative visa, you do have to go do an interview in in the consulate. So you physically have to travel there. And I've heard some horror stories like, like mine went very, it was super easy. I had to go to DC. I flew up there, did the interview and it was like not even really an interview. It was more just handing them the paperwork and they looked at it and they said, you know, come back in an hour and you'll have your visa. Um, but, uh, but I've heard some people like, you know, having to fly from like Denver to LA and then getting there and they were like, oh, you actually need this piece of paper, uh, which, you know, you is back in Denver. Uh, you, you didn't know that, but we're telling you now. So then they would have to like come back a second time. Um, so what, one thing that I found in particular that I, at least with the DC consulate, and I, I feel like this is fairly, uh, consistent across a lot of them is like, they were really great about communication ahead of time. I had like a hundred emails exchanged back and forth and they were really responsive and very like thorough and, uh. and helpful, you know, like I, I would have expected to kind of get some like automated responder, or, you know, here's, here's the links you can go to, but I was communicating yeah. with a human who was answering my questions in English. Um, so it was, uh, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, that sounds slightly out of character yeah. <laughs> for, for a Spanish consulate. So glad you had a good experience. Yeah. Um, so we kind of know each other from Twitter. Um, it actually even says in your profile, like recently returned to Twitter. Uh, <laughs> when did you return? How's it been going? Um, Twitter's awesome, right? Like get to connect with cool people. Yeah, yeah. I um I got off all social media year several years ago and then um you know a couple years back like maybe 2 years ago or so my uh I, I got a nudge from a uh, my boss just basically saying like you know you should try to have some kind of a digital presence. I get it, you know, if you don't want to really be on it but it would be it'd be a smart move, you know, long term or whatever and maybe you'd have some fun with it. And he was right on both accounts. Like I, I got back on, I was kind of like got past the jaded side of being overwhelmed by social media and some of the uh some of the like uh need to share every little thing that's going on and and just looked at it more as a networking tool and a way to connect and and share relevant information about, you know, like what's going on in my with with work and travel and things like that. So I've, uh, I've, I've enjoyed that. And, um, and so, yeah, just recently, like in the last year, I think got back on Twitter and was just, and, and yeah, man, I'm having fun with it, connecting with cool people like yourself. And, um, you know, I think one of the big motivations in particular with Twitter was like, I launched my own podcast, uh, called about abroad where we talk about like some similar subjects as, as you do here on my Latin life. And like, the, the idea was like, well, you know, you do need to meet people where they are and, um, and maybe also I'll find some, some new information that'll be relevant to share with my audience and, um, and, and also, you know, new guests and things like that. So, uh, it turned, it, it turned out that I've just really thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I'm a new, total newbie. Yeah. Um, I'll come back to the podcast in a second, cause that's a topic in and of itself, the about, about about a broad podcast, but, uh, just for Twitter for a sec, I mean, uh, I know you connect, uh, talk a lot on there with Mitko. Um, Mitko and I actually have an unreleased episode of the my Latin life podcast. 
you talk a lot with uh, Gonzalo Hall, uh, who's another kind of digital nomad advocate in Portugal. Who who are some of your top like Twitter buddies there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I love what uh, I love what John Lee's doing at, at Work From Anywhere. Um, he would be an awesome person to have. Uh, perhaps he's in Ireland, so maybe not, maybe not my Latin life, but I love what he's doing. He shares really relevant information. What's his Uh, handle? Uh, off the top of my head, I, I type in, I think it's John underscore Lee, perhaps he's the CEO founder of a company called work from anywhere, which is helping digital nomads navigate like the, the tax aspect of like, where can you actually work? And more so, I think even more helping okay. companies. L-E-E or L-I or? Yeah, L-E-E. I think it's John underscore Lee, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, and the company's called Work From Anywhere. So I love what John's doing. Um, I mean, there's some really entertaining people out there, you know, like Peter Levels and um, mm-hmm. who's uh, who's always sharing some comical and, and interesting stuff. Um, my I follow a lot of people from, you know, I work at a company called Doist, which is like a remote first team and advocate in and of itself for, for, you know, uh, location independence and such. So we've got some really smart people at the company that I, that I interact with there more than we do at work actually. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's been, it's been great to connect with people like, you know, outside of the, the quote unquote office. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, nowadays, like half the Twitter or sorry, half the podcast guests just come from Twitter. How do you, how do you do it? Because you've, I think done like 77 episodes, at least that's what I see on my podcast app. How do you, um, how, how do you organize your guests? Do you do it through D- Twitter DMS mostly? Do you email them? Um, so this may be like a really nerdy thing, um, coming from Twitter, but I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Actually, like when I made that return to social media, the advice was like, just pick one, uh, pick one platform and just, just do that. You know, don't overwhelm yourself with many platforms if social media isn't really your thing. So I I was like, Oh, I have a LinkedIn account. I think, uh, (laughs) let me open that up. Um, and, uh, so I just started on LinkedIn and then actually ended up, like I said, same with Twitter, kind of having fun with it. And, um, and, uh, connected with a lot of people there professionally. And so, uh, I'm pretty active over there and I get a lot of requests to be on the show from, from LinkedIn. And then also I think through my, my work, uh, as the head of remote at Doist, like I'm kind of involved in that remote work world. And so I, I get to fortunately like interact with a lot of really interesting people. Um, you know, like Gonzalo Hall, you mentioned before, um, mm-hmm. He's been on the podcast before, and I, I believe we met through some remote work conference years and years ago. I don't even remember. Um, so he's been a longtime friend, and then it's just like natural to bring him on the show and talk about how he's building digital nomad vi- villages in in Madeira and <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, yeah. You you've definitely had a lot of really really interesting guests. I'm actually uh, scrolling through it right now. I mean, Gonzalo Hall was uh, one of the first episodes. Um, I'll, I'll ring off a couple for people just so they can get the idea. Um, expat life in the Middle East, um, small town to the big city, thriving in Hong Kong. Um, let's see. Um, there's a lot of really, really good ones that I kind of skipped over. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of like really interesting ones. Um, international taxes made cool. Um, Colombia building a brand, Croatian island life, 
living in the Canary Islands and co-living, life in the French Alps, a nomadic CEO and his family travel the world together, uh, in Austrian and Britain, um, expat life in Mexico. Uh, it just keeps going. And th- there's like a lot of like really, really cool ones. E-residency in Estonia. You, like you really covered a lot of the main uh, digital nomad sort of concepts or, or niches, mm-hmm. be, it, be it the countries or the visas or the, um, the, 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 the communities and the nomad hotspots, moving to Dubai, living tax-free here, um, <laughs> traveling to Cape Town, South Africa. Like we can keep going, but there, there's like a lot. There's a lot here, and you've kind of touched upon everything. Latin America, of course. Um, the most recent episode is a dude from Brazil to Ireland with the founder of E Dublin. I'm guessing this guy helps um, helps Brazilian people move to Dublin to study and then kind of like get a job and stuff. What do they do there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, more or less. Like he's um, dude, super interesting. He like moved to from Brazil to Ireland 14 years ago started a blog about like what he was experiencing. It turned into a, over time into like a massive, um, brand that's got over, like, I think they've got close to 2 million total followers across all their social media platforms. Their YouTube channel has like 150,000 subscribers or something. Um, it's, it's like a crazy big brand that this guy built sort of on accident and, uh, just also happens to be a super nice guys runs community at multiple, like, um, big tech companies like Dropbox and Wix and uh, yep. just just fascinating story. And and that's kind of the whole idea like behind the podcast was really just to say like, you know, there's a big wide world of opportunities out there. I've once thought that I was restricted to just living in my country and like I would always just have to travel in short stints to, to other places. And I was like, I kind of want to, now that I'm learning, that's not possible. There's all these different ways to do that, to, to build a life for yourself abroad, if you choose to some of it, a lot of it through remote work, cause that's kind of the low hanging fruit and the easy one to, to grab. But I mean, a lot of, I've had people on there that are like, yeah, I took a job as a flight attendant, you know, and they moved me to, to, uh, the middle East. And I lived in the middle East for 10 years and now I'm based in Spain and, um, or people that took, you know, student visas and, and went and did something and, you know, or, or whatever, there's, there's all kinds of opportunities. And, and so it's kind of like, part talking about the the very like boring kind of practical stuff of like here's how you do it here yeah, are the steps which is important. <laughs> yeah which is important exactly like that's the necessary stuff that'll actually get you there but also like just the inspiration like hey you know this is possible they have a digital nomad visa in Croatia now and you can just go there and there's 42 other ones where you can go and live and work if you want and let's let's talk about how you do that so um i think a lot like you man like we just like we have that passion for exploring and want to open it up to other people who, who might think it's not possible. Yeah, definitely. And when you started the podcast about abroad, um, so you started it, I think, back in March of 2021. Was it sort of within uh, your company, Doist, or is it sort of separate from that and it's your own thing? Oh yeah, it's it's totally separate. It's a it was a side project, just like a a passion project. Like oh, I I love podcasts. I'm probably having these conversations anyway. Like a lot of them are, you know, I'm, I'm just genuinely interested in the subject. I'm interested in learning how to make a podcast. And uh, you know, I thought I I joked with someone recently. Like I was like, yeah, I thought maybe like my mom, dad, and Nana would listen. 
And uh, it turned out like, you know, some other people chimed in and tuned in as well. But um, it was it was started out just as a fun side project. Doist is an uh, awesome company that just says like, you know, they embrace that, 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 you know, there's a life outside of work. You don't have to just slave away at your job and shouldn't have anything else in your life. So they're they're happy that I that I have this side project and that I get to enjoy that, um, you know, separately. Very cool. So you've done 70 something episodes. What do you think you've learned? Like what, what, what have been your epiphanies in the podcasting world? Man, I, I mean, one of the coolest things just on sort of a, a personal note is like, I, it's brought out this whole creative side of me that I didn't know existed, which I think is one of the great joys of having a side project. Like we're all probably in jobs that we, you know, fell into, think we're, think we're good at because we develop skills, you know, and, and we kind of continue down that same path for a long time. And um, I was not someone that would consider myself creative. Like that, that wasn't really my thing. Um, you know, my wife is an artist. And uh, so I probably compare myself to her and I say, okay, like, I, yeah, I have zero creativity. Um, but creating a podcast is, is in and of itself a creative outlet, you know, like learning how to be a host and learning how to do the actual behind the scenes stuff, thinking about the marketing and the design and the, the, uh, the audio aspects and how you want to structure the episodes and all that. It is like a little bit of an art. And so, um, that's been really like, uh, revealing and like, and, and really kind of rounded things out for me, like my, my day to day, I enjoy working on it. It's something that, that, uh, you know, brings me a lot of joy in that way. So I think that's been one thing. Like I wasn't expecting that. Um, I've also learned a ton about all the opportunities that there are to do some really cool stuff around the mm -hmm. world and kind of virtually traveled to some places that I've never been. Um, you know, I had one of my early episodes was like, you know, going like talking to somebody in Abu Dhabi and like, I've never been to the UAE and I've just like blown away by what her life is like there. Uh, so I've had countless experiences where I'm just like, now, nah, like my bucket list is just continuously growing. Um, so I've, I mean, I've learned a ton in, in that regard. And I think like the third area is probably very like practically speaking a lot about these digital nomad visas. I've tried to do a, a big focus on those because it's so relevant to the audience. Um, so I've learned a lot about the intricacies of those. Um, I had one guy on that shared like how they're actually built, like he's worked behind behind the scenes on like creating them. Um, mm -hmm. So just looking yeah, at that it guy? Who's, who's that guy? It's like he's, he runs like the Digital Nomad Association, that guy, or are you talking about Gonzalo? Yeah, 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 exactly. This guy's, I mean, completely fascinating, dude. He's is like- it, Is it Gonzalo or there's another, I know there's another guy. Sorry, what's that? Which, which uh, are we talking about Gonzalo or are we no, talking about a different guy? No, 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 this guy's name is Urkan, Urkan Munishi. Um, uh -huh. and he's, uh, -huh. uh, yeah, so he's worked with like, uh, had him on a couple, several months back, um, in season four, I believe he, he basically has worked like with these governments on crafting the, the digital nomad visas. in I think like five or six different countries and, um, and some that still haven't come out yet, some that, that are already out, but basically like, you know, just the mechanics of like what they're looking for. Some are looking for tax revenue. Some are looking for you know, just like getting bodies through the door, basically, like get more people here spending money. Um, some are looking for people to just be there for one year. And there's certain reasons for that. Some want you to be able to extend them um, to really like, in, you know, integrate into the into the economy there. So um, yeah, I mean, just like tons of stuff about about these things and like how it actually 
works and then how people can actually apply and, and, and get their foot in the door. Definitely. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about Spain and just, um, you know, how that's been going, kind of give people a little bit of a, uh, inside vibe into what it's like to live in Spain. How did, how did you, uh, settle upon Valencia? (laughs) I mentioned before that like, you know, Spain picked me, Valencia also picked me (laughs) even, even more so. Um, I mentioned that I had to go to the, to the consulate in DC. Right. And Mm -hmm. so when I was there, they, they said like, okay, here, we're giving you your visa. You just needed to add like on this line, like, where are you going to live? And we were like, well, we haven't chosen that yet. Like, we don't, we don't know where we're going to live. We're not leaving for like six months. You know, we're just doing the visa stuff now. And she was like, well, to finish this off, like we need to know where are you going to live? And we'd spent some time in Spain before, but we'd never been to Valencia. We'd spent a lot of time down in Andalusia in the South, uh, which is like, kind of like going to like the Texas of Spain. It's like what you think of, you know, when people think of America, the U S they're like, you know, they think of like Texas Cowboys. Andalusia, Andalusia is the Texas of Spain. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. It's like what you, it's like the stereotype, you know, it's like flamenco and tapas and paella and bullfighting and uh, beautiful beaches. And like, so it's kind of like, it's, it's a lot of maybe what you, the stereotype, the equivalent to the, to the cowboy and the, rodeo and you know big big wide open lands uh, so anyway i i was just like we we enjoyed uh that experience like for multiple months before and we're like but we want something different we want like more of a city and we had had some a spanish friend tell us like if you guys ever come back you should go to valencia i really think you'd like valencia so we just randomly said valencia at the consulate and um and yeah, and then put that down. And we thought we'd go for three months, honestly. We thought we'd like go there, we'd be in Valencia for three months, and then we'd move on and go somewhere else. But we got there and just were like, this is awesome. Let's just let's just stay the whole year. And then that turned into, you know, almost five years. Yeah, I actually have a buddy in Valencia. Um, his name is Charlie Headley, the founder of Valencia Nomads. Do you know that dude? I, yeah, man, we we do know each other. He's awesome. He uh, he's done a great job with that group and his bar there, Boogaloo and El Carmen is is sweet. There you go. So you're probably closer to it than me because um, I know him from Playa del Carmen. He was kind of in the same digital nomad squad and Playa del Carmen. We we've hung out together a bunch of times down there, um, and then he started up this whole Valencia thing, and he started like a cafe, and I guess. Like what's the cafe about? It's kind of like a normal cafe, but it's just kind of very adapted to digital nomads and and working from the cafe. Yeah. Like Valencia is interesting. And I think this is one of the things that's really awesome about it. It's not, it it feels very local. Like when you go to Barcelona, for instance, like Barcelona is an amazing city, um, but, but you don't necessarily feel like it's very like, you know, Spanish still like you, there's tons of tourists, there's tons of um, expats living there. It feels very like a very international city, um, mm-hmm. which is awesome in its own way. And, you know, sometimes in Valencia, you miss that. Valencia feels more traditional, more local. Um, you know, you, you really sh- like, it's not, I wouldn't expect to walk up into a restaurant and be able to speak English, for instance. Um, and when you're walking around in the streets, you just see a lot of locals. There are other foreigners and stuff and, and, you know, tourists, of course, but, um, but it, it, it's on a much lower level. So, there's not like a huge, um, like a, a strong 
cons- like a group of expats, nomads. Like there's not like one central place where you meet a lot of them or you hang out. Like it exists. Except but- this cafe now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think, I think Charlie really kind of created that, um, there, they, like he created this, this digital nomads group in telegram, which at one point had like many thousands of people, um, which was definitely the strongest, you know, virtual place to connect with other, uh, nomad types, expats there in Valencia. But then he actually created it. Like they, they bought a little restaurant and bar cafe, turned it into a, a place, uh, where it's, you know, it's open to everybody, of course, but it tends to be kind of a central meeting hub. Um, for for uh, a lot of foreigners living there, so it's yeah. and they did a great job with it. Such a perfect example of just like building your tribe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like yeah. spin up a little Facebook group, basically buy a cool cafe so that people can come through. Um, all you need is like a space with an espresso machine and a and some Wi Fi, and there you go. You have immediately have a tribe. Yeah, and people could do this like anywhere in the world. Like I know. Even places where you think would be saturated, like Mexico or something, a lot of the cities in Mexico could still use something like this, just like, um, you know, like a a little nomad group in a cafe. Yeah, man. I think it, it changes everything. I mean, it just gives you, we're all craving that community. Um, the biggest knock I hear on people, you know, not enjoying the lifestyle is like just not being able to find their community. I've, I've found it mm-hmm. to be really easy, in my opinion, like, it's really easy because you suddenly have something in common with all these people you otherwise wouldn't have anything in common with or wouldn't know you had anything in common with. Um, but then you, you know, you, you're Charlie and I are two people from two different sides of the world, but we're both happen to be expats living in Valencia. That's enough to, to give us a reason to talk. And then you find out you have a bunch in common from there. So, um, yeah, I think just having that, that place to go virtually and, in person is it makes all the difference yeah that's unreal so tell us a little bit more about valencia um yeah i guess valencia versus barcelona like is it really just the more authentic um local version of barcelona or how would how would someone uh from catalonia sort of describe the difference yeah, that's a good question. I I wonder that as well. I mean, I think like the knock on Valencia kind of coming at it from the other angle would be like, it's small, it's traditional, it's quiet, you know, like it's it's comparatively to a Barcelona. I think it's about one fifth the population um, of, mm-hmm. of Barcelona. Which so, is I mean, still decent. It's still decent. Yeah, We're talking yeah. like, I don't know, more it's than still like a million person city, you know, yeah. it's, it's not yeah, like it's a sizable it's city. A Pueblo. <laughs> um, yeah. there's a, there's a lot going on there. Like, uh, for me, it was the, the perfect balance, um, be- between being in like a mega metropolis. Um, you get, I mean, I, there's the cost of living thing. Like you just get a lot more for your money in terms of housing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you also have like, like in Valencia, Valencia is the third biggest city in Spain behind Madrid and Barcelona. And oh, so wow. it's the third biggest airport. So you get access to like the rest of Europe, super easy. Like I could be, this is one of the coolest things to me. I could be at my apartment in the center of the city and sitting at my gate, like not like through security at the airport, sitting at my gate in like 45 minutes, uh, which is just like, it'd take, you'd be on the train that long just to get to the airport from one of the other two major cities. And then you've got long lines of security and stuff like that. It was just super easy. And then I was popping off to, you know, to Italy and to France and 
Portugal and Canary Islands, like just whenever you want for really affordable. Um, so that was always a big thing for me. And like the other thing is the, the center of the city is one of those prototypical, um, beautiful European towns that's just got like cobblestone mm-hmm. streets and old architecture. And um, it's very like windy. It was built as a labyrinth to like for like protective reasons. So it's got these like windy mm-hmm. streets and narrow alleyways and cool tapas bars and um, like enough liveliness to like keep you entertained, but also just not like a, a discotheca happening like, you know, 24 seven either. So <laughs> <laughs> those are some of the things I like about the the city itself. And then there are a couple of things like aesthetically, like, right. Like for example, there's a huge uh, 10 kilometer long river that used to run through the city, which flooded. And so they drained, the like it flooded the whole city and destroyed the city back in like the thirties. So they drained it and turned it into this long, beautiful park. They still call it the Rio. Um, so it's, it looks like a river, but it's just all lush green trees, running trails, mm-hmm. dog parks. Um, there's always activities going on out there and it leads straight out to the beach. So you can kind of be like in the middle of the city, out at the beach in this big, huge green area, um, you know, kind of all really, really close to each other. Yeah. And how's the beach of Valencia? The beach is fine. Uh, it's not I, like, I, it's not the reason to come to Valencia. I, I know in my opinion, like some people would say, you know, Oh no, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a Mediterranean beach. Um, but like, just like an hour South, you get down into these smaller towns like Javia, Altea, Calpe, Denia, um, towards Alicante. And like, those beaches yeah. are insane. Like they're like, you know, cliffs, like big, uh, high rising cliffs sticking straight up out of the water, like super turquoise water. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the, the calas are. Yeah. Yeah. All those calas, like it's, that's like beautiful beaches. So comparatively like Valencia beach seems like, oh yeah, it's just a beach. You know, they've got a little boardwalk with a bunch of restaurants and stuff and you've got the water there. Um, and it is cool for a city beach, but like to get into that, like beautiful Mediterranean style that you're, you're probably imagining. Um, I, I suggest heading like a little South towards, uh, uh, like, uh, they call it the, the playa, uh, the, what is it? The playa Blanca. Sure. Yeah. It's like this peninsula thing that sticks out. Yeah. I bet. I mean, as long as the beach is a little cleaner than the Barcelona beach, then that's that's perfectly fine. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's, it's probably like somewhat, you know, comparable and, uh, in, in a way, but yeah, there's, there's city beaches. Like you're there, like I wouldn't go to Valencia for the beach. I would go for the city and then escape to the beach. Um, you know, sure. if, if that's what you're really looking for. Yeah. I spent, um, two months living in Barcelona, um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I never made it to Valencia. I only made it as far as like Tarragona and Reus. Um, but I was, I was trying to, um, but I, yeah, I, I, that was definitely part of my routine is I would just, uh, take those city bikes down to the beach, get some sun, pop in the water. And, uh, nice. I was working the U S time zone. And so if you work for a U.S. company in Europe and you're working U.S. hours, you're kind of working around from around 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. And so it's just perfect amount of time to get up in the morning, have a coffee, bike down to the beach, go chill at the beach, maybe get some errands done, head back, start working. Yeah. Oh, that sounds perfect, man. That's that's not a bad schedule at all. <laughs> I, 
I love it. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun lifestyle. Like, and you can enjoy the, you know, the mornings are, are active and, um, and people are, that's another thing I really like about like Spain in general is like people are, people are up and active and like, there's, you know, you have the stereotype around like the siesta and the afternoons can be a little sleepy. That's true. (laughs) But like, it's a, it's a vibrant lifestyle for sure. Have you made a, an effort to learn Catalan or uh, at least Spanish? Uh, yeah, I, I speak Spanish, I guess, well now. Um, they uh, In Valencia, they actually have an official language called Valenciano. Uh, mm. that's Which is like slight, a dialect of Catalan. Yeah, I mean, if you say that to a Valencian, they say, no, it's an official language. Uh, Catalan would say, what, Valenciano exists? Isn't it just Catalan? Uh, so I don't know what the truth is there. I don't speak either. <laughs> uh, but you don't, it's not like in, that's a big difference between Valencians and Catalans is like you, when you're in Valencia, you don't speak Valenciano, like the road signs are in Valenciano and official paperwork and stuff, but they don't expect you to speak it, uh, at all. Whereas like when you're in Barcelona, you might encounter people that speak Spanish and Catalan, but they refuse to speak to you in anything other than Catalan. Okay. Uh, so I'm reading the, the Wikipedia for Valencian language. The official historical and traditional name used in the Valencian community to refer to the Romance language, also known as Catalan. Okay. I wonder if yeah, I, I read the, the Spanish version, it would say something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to see it too. Uh, yeah, I mean, on like... Uh... On official paperwork and stuff, it says like Valenciano, or if you're talking to somebody, they'll say like, "Ah, oh, drink," you know, like, "Yo, we're gonna no, this this is in Valenciano." Um, okay, so it says in Spanish, it says "lengua romance hablada in in um, Valencia, como en Catalunya, yeah. Islas Baleares, blah blah blah." Donde recibe el nombre de Catalan. So I I think they are kind of in agreement that it's the same thing. Um, I think uh, uh, one thing that's cool about Valencia is it seems to be like one of the main ports of entry to um, to the, I guess, Islas Baleares. I don't know how they say it, but like yeah. to Mallorca and Ibiza and stuff like that. A lot of the a lot of the ships leave from Valencia, right? More than Barcelona, I think. Yeah, it's a huge port city. I don't know, like. Uh comparatively like what the exports are and like the and and which, right. which i meant like passenger routes. traffic like if yeah. someone was gonna if someone was gonna go to valencia then they could like hop on a little ferry uh, totally. to mallorca or Ibiza, right yeah yeah it's super easy um to the out to the balearic islands and also like i mean direct flights like i would fly to mallorca in 30 minutes um from i think or 40 maybe 40 minutes from valencia and there's like tons of direct flights to all those islands every day uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can take the ferries as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're like, that's like the, the quick escape. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. And Valencia is obviously pretty well connected by train with the rest of, of Spain, right? So Spain has like one of the best train networks. Um, even Valencia has its own subway system, like below the city. Um, yeah. that seems pretty extensive. It seems like it has a bunch of different lines. And then, I mean, the Valencia Barcelona train must be like pretty, pretty frequent as well. Yeah, they have a they have a fast rail system between like high speed rail system between Madrid, Valencia, and Barcelona. So like you can get from Barcelona to Valencia and vice versa in three hours, or to 
Madrid and Valencia are connected and I think it's an hour and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's pretty quick. And then, yeah, you can take trains up and down the, uh, up and down all around the, uh, the coastline. And, um, I think it gets a little bit like less efficient in the South, in my experience, like down in, in Andalusia, for instance, which is like the mainly the main Southern part of the country. Um, mm -hmm. but like the further North you go, uh, and especially between the major cities, it's really efficient and, and inexpensive. Right. And so if someone was looking to base up on the coast in Spain, um, and you wanted to be on the Mediterranean side, which is probably the better side, you know, like there's a lot of small beach towns, but if you want a, a city of any size, there's not too, too many options, right? So yeah. you have Barcelona, I guess you could say Tarragona, but that's not really a city and it's quite touristy. And then the very next one is Valencia. And then after that, you got Alicante, you got Cartagena, which are still like quite small and sleepy. Yeah. Um, you got Ale Almeria as you go down and then Malaga and Marbella. And so it's basically like, it's basically like you almost have the choice between Catalonia or Andalusia. And it's kind of one of the mm -hmm. two, unless you want to be in Alicante, kind of in the middle. So you kind of almost have to choose your vibe. Like, are you choosing a Catalonia vibe or Andalusia vibe? Yeah, I mean, they uh, that, that was sort of my mindset in a lot of ways. Like, I when we, we first went to Spain, I really thought, you know, I wanted to go to Andalusia. I wanted that like traditional, traditional Spain um, the, the interesting thing is that area you mentioned down there, like Marbella to Malaga is the Costa del Sol, which is gorgeous, but unfortunately just totally infiltrated by tourists and, and like, it's like little Britain, um, like everybody there, you don't yeah. speak, you don't need to speak any Spanish. Um, it's, it just, we went and stayed in a small, like beautiful little village, uh, for a couple months and like, we're planning to learn Spanish and I didn't speak a word of Spanish. It was, everybody was British, Irish, uh, Scottish, which was awesome in its own way, but like it, it wasn't the Spanish experience you're necessarily looking for, um, mm -hmm. in, in that way. So like, as you start navigating, as you just did, like up the coast, you start looking at the other options and, um, and yeah, I mean, you get up to, you know, Alicante is, is, is one option. Um, it's not my favorite place. Uh, like I, I'm not a big fan of the city. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, Valencia, Barcelona, and then really like the a huge difference between Valencia and, um, and, and Barcelona, when you get down to those two, which is exactly what I did, like, should we put down Barcelona or, you know, we've already done and Andalusia. Should we, should we do Barcelona or Valencia? The reason we chose Valencia is because we wanted to learn to speak Spanish and, and not, not have it be Catalan as the, as the primary language. We probably still would have learned some Spanish in Barcelona, but I think we were really aided by being in, in Valencia, uh, in that regard. Mm. So you think Valencia is a little bit less Catalan and a little bit more Spanish than Barcelona? The, to be honest, this is the first time anybody's ever referred, I've ever heard somebody refer to Valencia as Catalan. Like they, they definitely do not <laughs> in Valencia. It's its own region like uh valencia is like a like a state right, right, right. a city and a county sort of so they totally like they they say you know we speak valencian and spanish uh and uh they they would like differentiate themselves from the catalonians um uh, which might be harder for like outsiders to see <laughs> it might seem a little weird but um but yeah totally like you 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 don't like i never spoke a word of valenciano or catalan in valencia Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, prices. I think digital nomads love to know kind of how cheap a place is, blah, blah, blah. And my strong suspicion is that Valencia probably has one of the best like ROIs or value ratios, um, possibly in all of Europe, um, yeah. because my my suspicion is it's quite cheap. Barcelona is already like pretty cheap for an American. And then Valencia, I'm just guessing, is significantly cheaper than Barcelona. And, you know, it's a sick city. It's got really, really good infrastructure. Um and, you know, it's obviously very safe and it's right on the beach. I like cities that are right on the beach. So kind of seems to check pretty much all the boxes. So like how much, how much, I mean, I, I'm guessing you, since you're a baller, you're, you're probably paying a little bit more than most people, but like, what's the <laughs> average person like paying in rent? What's it cost to go out for tapas? How much is a bottle of wine cost? Stuff like that. Yeah. Good, good questions. Um, so, I mean, I know people that, that say like, they swear you can live on $1,500 a month. Um, no problem. Like, uh, you know, all, all your rent and everything included and, and live pretty good. Um, Mm -hmm. and I could see that for sure. Like, especially if you're like sharing an apartment or, or something like that. Um, I think for, you know, for $800, 800 to $1,000, a month, you can have like a really nice apartment, um, in the, you know, in a great area of town, um, with all your bills and stuff covered. Uh, I would venture to guess like that's about, you know, you might want to double that in, in a place like Barcelona, but I haven't lived in Barcelona. So I, I don't 100% know that's just a, just that I've gotten from talking to other people who have made the move in one direction or the other. Um, and then like when you go out to eat, like when my, my wife and I go out for, dinner, like I'm going to expect to spend like 25 to $30, you know, something, something in that range, um, for a handful of tapas and, and maybe some drinks and stuff like that. So like going out to get a beer is about two to three bucks. Um, you know, a general tapas like to share between two people might be four to seven or eight, something like that. Um, one of the major things for, for Americans is like, if you're, if you're like, you know, kind of more permanently there, is the uh is the health insurance which is just crazy which isn't like specific to uh to valencia but i mean like in terms of what we are used to paying in the us uh like we you could pay you know 75 to 100 dollars a month for like full coverage like no deductibles no coinsurance none of that which is like impossible to imagine <laughs> coming from the us um so all those things combined, like I calculated, uh, it's all in all like about like uh, about half to to you know maybe two thirds at, at the most of of what I would be spending elsewhere. Got it. And uh, when you go back to North Carolina, are you surprised how expensive it is? Yeah, it's it's so hard to adjust to the to the mentality. <laughs> like I go back and I and I've tried to protect myself from that as much as I can. But yeah, it's inevitable, man. You go back and you're like, oh, really? Like this isn't even that good. <laughs> it's really expensive. Um, <laughs> but but I mean, more than that, even more than like the like the cost of living is good. But people, you know, you tend to spend what you make and you fill in those gaps. And um, you know, so I think it's whereas like it would be really, really hard to live on 1500 bucks a month in, in, you know, in, in most of the States, North America. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you do it in, 
in a place like Valencia, it is, it is totally possible. And if you make more than that, then you just, you end up spending a little more, maybe you got a bigger terrace or you live on the, in the penthouse or something, or you have a car when you don't really need one or you travel a lot more. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's totally possible. I, I imagine the, the average local in Valencia is only paying like 400 bucks a month. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have, I have local friends there that pay for like, like, uh, you know, three fifty, four fifty a month. And, uh, and actually, I mean, I know someone who rents like a, like a room in a big house with lots of other people. And I think it's like a hundred bucks a month, um, something like that. So it's, yeah, I mean, you can, you can go as, you know, that's outside Valencia, it's in a Pueblo. Um, but like you can, you can totally go there, there and, and live pretty well. Um, and that's, I mean, again, we're talking about like the third largest city, you know, in the, in the country. Like if you go out to the, to the smaller yeah. towns where, where a lot of the charm and magic is, um, there can be a, a, a lot to discover there for, for really affordable. And actually, I mean, that's something we should talk about is like, we've talked a lot about like the Mediterranean coast, but actually like the Pyrenees are in Spain and they're incredible. Uh, the North side of Spain looks like, uh, like that's where they filmed a lot of game of Thrones. There's like crazy cliffs and mountains and green, that you don't really think of when you think of Spain. It's actually like super diverse geographically. And there's some really cool like hidden pockets that are even more affordable and also like maybe even more authentic in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I never made it up there, but I was, um, I I was hanging out with a bunch of people from Bilbao a lot when I was Mm. in Barcelona, I remember. So, and, uh, so I learned a lot about kind of that corridor from like Bilbao to uh, whatever it's called on the in the to Biarritz kind of in like in that uh, yeah, San, the, San, San Sebastian corridor. Oh man, that yeah, that area is awesome. I mean, that's Basque country, and like yeah, I do. When you talk about Spain, like we tend to think about the Mediterranean side and Catalonia, Span, Spanish, all of this, but like there's also you know you have Basque country, which has its own official language and totally different culture and a totally different climate and architecture and everything. You've got Galicia up in the Northwest, which is, has its own language and different, you know, it's more like Portuguese almost. I mean, it's North, it's sitting straight mm-hmm. over the, the North side of Portugal and it's like got landscape that looks like Ireland. Like it, it's, it's crazy. Um, and so you have all these like pockets where there's like, literally there's different languages, there's different histories, um, you know, different, totally different cultures and food and stuff, uh, and different weather. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty wild. So tell me this, when you're in Valencia, where do you get your fruit and vegetables? Um, there's a couple little, like, uh, there's like the Mercado Central, which is just from my apartment was about like a five minute walk away. So occasionally Mm -hmm. there, there's lots of like fruit stands. Um, like it's a, just on every single corner, there's a, there's a fruit stand. Uh, so you go just like pick up a couple of quick things there. Uh, occasionally like at like a regular, like supermarket, you know, if you're just like, they, they do have those, like, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of our normal supermarket, I had one a couple blocks away. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have, you have your, your options, but I, I mean, I prefer to go to like the little local market, get that traditional kind of feel, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> talk to the abuela, get my, get my oranges <laughs> from the same lady. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, how, how much better is the food and how much cheaper is it? Uh, I mean, cheaper is like in, incomparable. It's, it's, 
I, I can't even, I, I don't even know what it looks like anymore. Um, going on like a normal shopping run, uh, back home. But I mean, you know, I would, I would expect that it's, it's a good, it's probably half of what I would spend on groceries, if not more, um, you know, if, if not even more significant than that. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the quality depends on what you're looking for, you know, like the seafood's really awesome. Um, uh, you know, coming from the Mediterranean and, uh, I'm vegetarian, so I actually don't eat a lot of like meat. I eat a little bit of seafood occasionally, but, um, but like there's people love the jamon and the, the traditional, uh, Spanish food. So yeah, man, there's, it's, it, you won't be, you won't be like for wanting if on the food aspect. Yeah. When, uh, when I'm back in North America, it's always upsetting that broccoli, <laughs> the broccoli is $5 for like God. a little thing. Oh man. That's so hard to understand. It's, uh, your mind shifts, right? Like you, you, you forget what used to be normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think people really do like to hear about the cost of living and stuff like that, because if you can show them that, oh, you get to live in a picturesque Mediterranean city, amazing trains and this and that, and you get, you know, real organic fruit and vegetables that are not only like clearly objectively better, but they're also like less than half the price. Um, it really, once you start stacking all these little benefits, you start, uh, Americans, I think really in the past year have really started saying, why the hell do I not live in Europe? Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, something that's interesting would be interesting to talk with you about on that note is like, so I didn't really know, like I thought of Spain as like, uh, before coming to Spain for the first time, like thought of it as like Europe. And I thought generally Europe is kind of expensive. Um, and, and so when I was like first starting out on my digital nomad journey and like on a pretty tight budget, um, my mindset was to go to Latin America and I went to Latin America and then eventually made my way to Spain. And like, I had already traveled a decent amount in Europe before that. Um, and so I had this mindset that like, you know, I'm just going to need to like really figure out how to make it work. But I was shocked that Spain was basically more, I mean, when I added up my expenses, like it was on par with Latin America and in some case, some ways even like cheaper. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, that was kind of mind blowing and a pretty special thing about Portugal and, and Spain compared to like, I'm in Germany now and like, it's much more expensive, like just your day to day, your, your grocery store run when you go out to dinner or whatever it's, it's much more expensive. But, um, anyway, I think that's something like worth, worth mentioning, like, uh, yeah, it's European, but it's not necessarily like the same cost of living as you get in other parts of Europe. Yeah. I mean, Southern, Southern Europe is surprisingly cheap. I think some people don't see it because, um, they'll go in high season when the hotels are expensive and they'll go to very touristy areas. But if you're just living a normal life in a normal Mediterranean city, it's unbelievably cheap and often even cheaper than Latin America. I think one of the big differences is in Latin America, you do kind of have to stay in a high-end area, uh, especially if you don't speak Spanish well, because, um, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're basically in Latin America, I would say it's just good to pay a little bit of a premium for, for safety and, uh, for walkability. Um, but in Europe you could live out in the middle of nowhere out in, you know, a half hour from the city center 
and it's still going to be safe. So if you like truly needed $100 rent, you could go do that in Latin America, no problem. Or sorry, you could do that in Europe, no problem. Where in Latin America, eh, you better you better know some people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, I had a friend visiting from LA who had just... He and his wife had just spent like a year and a half traveling through Latin America. They love Latin America. Like that's that's where they would like to like be. I know it's a very broad statement. I don't know exactly where, but they're just like, we love Latin America. That's their thing. And they're um and and so they just spent like a year and a half traveling around Latin America. They were back in LA and he came to visit me in Valencia. And my wife was riding off like on her bike in a different direction at like 10 PM at night. And we were going in another direction. And he was like, dude, you're okay with this? Like, you know, like shit. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I forget that's like a thing, like <laughs> danger. You know, I no, I, I'm to- yeah, I'm totally okay with it. It's you're you're very safe here, uh, and you know, in the middle of a major city and uh, ten o'clock at night or whatever. It's yeah, you just kind of stop thinking about it. it. Feels extremely safe, and that's something mm-hmm. that I I don't want to take for granted. But it, but it is very true. Yeah. So uh, talking about safety, um, <laughs> I was gonna make a joke here, but. Um, talk about safety. Let's talk about immigrant groups in Spain. I'm just joking because <laughs> I'm just joking because I was curious if there's um, a presence of uh, a particular like Latin American country in, in Valencia. If like, you know, have you noticed like, are there more, are there more Colombians or are there more Guatemalan people or something like that? Cause I, I have noticed that different cities in Spain, uh, people from different countries or regions tend to congregate a little bit. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of Venezuelans. Um, I mean, it's one of the greatest uh, mass exoduses in the world, I guess. So it's not super surprising. But in Valencia in particular, I I know a ton of Venezuelans um, that were all being, you know, I I feel like from what I understand, getting a a pretty warm welcome. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of cases that say otherwise. And there's some, you know, some outliers there. But uh, yeah, a lot of Venezuelans in particular. And then our, in Argentines, there's a, there's a good bit of Argentines as well. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. There's actually a major city in, uh, uh, in Venezuela called Valencia. Yeah. Oh, that's, is there, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I met a lot of people from there and learned, learned a good bit about, I've never been. Um, so I learned a good bit about Venezuela, uh, one of my first episodes on the podcast actually was with my friend who kind of had to like escape Venezuela and remote work kind of like saved him and his family by getting him, you know, this opportunity. Um, but I mean, it's crazy what's happened there just with the hyperinflation and horrible management by the government. And I mean, just, you know, I know some, I know some people who have some pretty sad stories, uh, kids who are living over here now, you know, 20 something year olds and their parents are back there and, um, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, it's I met a big... lot in Barcelona because a lot of them would either have uh, Spanish or they'd have uh, an Italian passport and that would kind of get them over to Europe. Yeah. So I think I met like a whole squad of Venezuelans and they all just had Italian passports. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's everybody's 1% Italian. You get a passport. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think that was one of the biggest realizations I had when I spent my time in Barcelona was just that how many Latin Americans were there. Cause I met people from literally every Latin American country. And so like, it, it was crazy. You'll see our people from Argentina, people from Honduras, people from Ecuador, like literally everything. And they're all kind of like living together in Spain and they all kind of have a bit of a bond. And 
uh, to be fair, like, I mean, it probably is worth noting that some of them do have like dubious, like immigration status. I remember I had to go to Italy after, uh, after Barcelona and I wanted this girl to come with me. I was like, baby, come to Napoli, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, I can't get on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I have to stay in Spain. I'll take a train maybe, but, uh, I'm not getting on a plane. I was like, oh, true. I forgot. (laughs) And I met so many people and what, what they would do is, um, they would like, uh, they would get, uh, they'd get like an education visa and they'd come to Spain for university or, or whatever it is and get like, kind of like a two year thing. And then they would just stay and they, yeah. they would just stay. And then, and then they've been, they've been in Spain for like years and years. Um, Dude, not to say I, that's good I, or bad or whatever, but just pointing out like a, a very, very common dynamic. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt it. It's just, it reminded me. It was so funny. I met an American guy who like, his mom had moved to Spain 30 years ago or something. And he lived in, I want to say like lived in Miami and he's like, yeah, I just hop over here all the time, you know, come see my mom and it's like, stay, you know, for, you know, six months. I stayed for a year one time, blah, blah. And he's just going on and we're like, oh, okay. So you just, uh, how'd you figure that out? Like, do you get some kind of visa for that? And he's like, what do you mean? And like, he's like, I just come in the country, you know, and, get, and I'm like, but yeah, but you can't stay past 90 days. He's like, huh, never knew that. Uh, and he'd done it plenty of times. So it's kind of the joke is like the, I mean, the, the immigration is pretty lax. Like I've heard people say, like, if you're going to enter an exit with like, with a dubious visa situation, like Spain is probably a safe bet to do that from. Um, but, uh, so I think a lot of people do, and you know, it's just kind of like, I mean, I've walked through customs so many times with like my, my documentation out ready to go. And they just like, you know, grab the passport, stamp it and you walk right by, they don't even look. So Dude, Take Spain, that for what it's worth. <laughs> dude, Spanish police, I have no idea what's going on. Um, I don't know if I should tell this story, but um, when I was living in Barcelona, um, I was hanging out. I kind of um, made friends with a group of people, with a group of graffiti artists. And so they were all graffiti artists. Barcelona is a big graffiti hub. Um, and they're all into art and all like all stuff like that. And they, they were even so intense that they were the type of guys that would um, they, they'd go in the subway tunnels and they would like do art in the tunnels and they'd be like going around the subway system and stuff like that, which is pretty, which in a normal country would be like a pretty big offense. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so what they would do though, is if they ever got caught by either the transit police or by the normal police while painting the streets is, uh, is, uh, if they ever got caught, they would just like start, they would just put on their French accent and they'd start kind of speaking French <laughs> <laughs> and then, and they'd be like, look, I'm a foreigner, blah, blah, blah. I'm just on vacation. And then the, the Spanish police would basically just let them go because they're like, oh, I don't want to deal with this foreigner and, and all the, the paperwork that it takes. And so they would just let them go. And they, I heard about this happening like several times. So <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, I, I overstayed a Schengen visa one time, uh, on accident. Like I, so I had a, uh, I'm a camper van guy and I had a camper van, uh, years ago that I bought in Spain and drove, this is on like a previous stint in Europe and, uh, drove it, was planning on driving it all around Europe, but it ended up being a complete catastrophe and like engine blew up everything that could go wrong with this van did. And so I ended up on this, I had like eight days to get to the north of France to catch a ferry to leave the Schengen area. And instead I, um, my, my, this van just kept breaking down and it took like over 40 days. So I get to the French border and like have to get on this 
boat and with the with the van and there's like eight french border patrol police like inspecting the vehicle and looking at all my documentation and then they were finally just like okay you could go on and i was like sweating bullets like thinking oh, i'm going to french jail for sure and um you know i had a i had a good excuse and story to to back it up in case but uh who knows i didn't know how that would go but they didn't they didn't notice and on we went and uh you know <laughs> life went on but yeah. So uh, long story short, Spain's actually like pretty chill from like an authority and rules perspective. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty chill in a, in a lot of different ways. <laughs> uh, the, the downside to that is like there, it leaves a lot of gray area. Um, so like you don't know, sometimes you just don't know where the rules stands and, uh, you think people are going to be relaxed about something and then you find like, you know, you don't, they're, they're not. And, uh, or the rule says like, oh yeah, you know, it's this or that. It gives you kind of a gray area to work with, but you're not quite sure if you, where you stand in that gray area. So that can also be a slight downside, but generally, I mean, I love the vibe. I love the, I love the tranquilo mentality. Um, they definitely, <laughs> they definitely live that vibe. For sure. Um, so yeah, I had a question about what would happen once you get your permanent residency. Uh, would anything about your personal planning change either from like a tax perspective or a uh where you're going to live perspective i guess from there you could maybe uh, once you're permanent resident in spain you probably that probably finally opens up uh more more travel opportunities within the shenzhen what 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 do you think the permanent residency is going to uh change about your life yeah so there's two options you can do when you when you transition to uh, permanent residency. There's one called the EU Larga, um, like the Larga Duración. So like you can become, a, yeah. So you basically like become a, a EU resident um, through Spain or there's the Spanish Larga Duración, which is like you just become a, a long-term resident of Spain. The process is not that much different, but it's slightly more challenging to get the, the EU Larga. Mm -hmm. um, but with the EU Largo, you actually have the ability to change countries. Like with with either, of course, you can just travel anywhere within the Shenzhen as much as you want. Um, but to actually like establish yourself and live and maybe get work or something like that, you're you're limited to Spain unless you get the the EU uh, version. So I'm going for the EU version, so I have the options. Uh, and then yeah, then I don't know. I mean, we're we're, we're kind of evaluating different opportunities if we want to try living in other countries or, or stick with Valencia and Spain. It's sort of like there's not really a lot of reason to leave and change. And at the same time, it's, you know, it's a big world and uh, kind of want to experience other places. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't know what it'll change yet. We've we've got that's, I think part of the experience this year is just like traveling around, experiencing some new places, spending some significant time in a few different countries and learning a bit mm -hmm. of the language and seeing how we vibe. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. There's, it's a, it's a big question mark for me right now, honestly. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, I know that for healthcare, there's like a national healthcare card and then you can get like an EU wide healthcare card as well. So, so, you know, something I did, there is like the, like Spain has a great national healthcare system. I've had Spanish people tell me it's some of the, it's one of the best in the world. And I, I don't hear many people complain about it. Um, 
but on the visa that I'm on, I don't have access to it. Like that's one of the quote unquote right. downsides of the, so that'll change. Yeah. So that will, that will be something that changes. So I have private insurance. Um, but that said, like, I know a lot of people that have private insurance and because it is so inexpensive and it does like expedite things for you. Um, even for like Spanish locals, a lot of people will, will get it anyway. Um, uh, but that covers you throughout Europe as well. So that's, that's, you know, noteworthy, I think. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've been looking into uh, the Portugal programs and they were telling me like, oh, okay, we can get you your your Portugal healthcare card very easily. But if you want to get the European healthcare card, it's just going to take a couple more weeks uh, mm, okay. on the ground and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, okay, well, I probably want that European one. Um, that's cool. So that when I go to, to Germany like yourself, I'll be good, et cetera. Oh, that's awesome. That's uh, yeah. That's huge. And then, like, a, I assume you don't have a driver's license yet in Spain, or do you? <laughs> I do. I had to go through the process of, of doing that. After six months uh, being in the country, your, your home driver's license is no longer valid. And right. so I actually got a ticket. That's one of those funny things, actually. It's what I was thinking of when I talked about the gray area. Like, yeah, that's written in the rules, but everybody says, like, yeah, well, the Spanish police aren't going to care about that. Well, they did when I got pulled over. And they gave me like a, a pretty hefty fine for uh, not having the the right driver's license anymore because I'm a resident of Spain, so I should have a Spanish driver's license. And it's not an easy process. I, I went through it. took me many months. I had to go back to driving school and uh, pass all these tests and pay all this money. And um, anyway, eventually got it. But it, it was a bit of a pain. Mm. And when you get the, the permanent residence, do you think you need to update the driver's license to like reflect your status. I would assume so. No, cause it's actually, it's two different cards. Like, uh, they look really similar. Um, but the identity card and the, so I, have no, like I know a, it's a different card, but I think your, your driver's license probably says like resident foreigner or something on it. And then there's, pro there's probably like an updated version of the driver's license that has like a newer status. This is just a guess. Yeah, it could. If it is, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, they told like the rule is you have to. It's good for ten years, and then you know that's the standard, is that it's good for you just renew it every ten years. But um, and I, and as far as I know, it doesn't say anything about my like uh, my like immigration status or whatever. But it, it may. Um, it, okay. I'm just not sure. I don't have it on me, or else I'd pull it out right now. <laughs> okay. And uh, let, let, let's do a couple more questions around sort of residency and citizenship there. Um, so you've been in Spain for like four or five years now. Uh, are these years under the non-lucrative visa, do they count towards citizenship as time on the ground? They do. Yeah. Unreal. So you, you must pretty much be there. It sounds like you'll probably be getting... PR and citizenship around the same time? Cause I'm guessing citizenship is, is five years. Uh, so it's 10. So it's like five oh, years. It? Yeah. So it's, I mean, and this could be, this could be different for different categories, but at least in my case, it's five years of, uh, what's it called? Temporary residency, five years of permanent residency, and then citizenship after that. Okay. Yeah, that does kind of ring a bell that Spain is a little bit longer. But I think for like for Latin Americans, like anybody coming directly from Latin America, it's like super expedited. Yeah, it's like two years or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Okay. And so is the rule for the, the, the permanent residency, it's like five years of temp and then you get PR? Correct. Yep. As far as I, as far as I understand, I mean, that's in my situation, that's the case. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And is the PR, is it, um, like some, sometimes a permanent residency isn't like permanent, permanent, and it needs to be renewed, uh, every, let's say five years or something like that. What do you know about sort of the renewal process of the PR? Yeah, that's my understanding as well. So it's basically PR is good for five years and then you have to, that, that the next time you go in is when you would be going for citizenship and, or if I understand correctly, you don't, you like, you don't necessarily have to go the citizenship route. You could just continuously extend the permanent residency. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and that's everything I've been told is like, that's not even really like a, that's kind of like the equivalent of like renewing your driver's license in that it's just, it's not like a question. It's more of just like turning in your card and getting a new one sort of. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's something like I didn't really understand that because I've had to go through all these visa renewals in other countries and in Spain. And like, it's, it's a, it's a question mark. Like you're not, you're not guaranteed, you know, um, even if you do everything correctly. So, uh, that, that was pretty, uh, that was heartwarming to know. Yeah, absolutely. Would you do uh, Spanish citizenship? Would you would you naturalize? Uh, I mean, I've got some time to think about it. I don't. I don't have any like. <laughs> yeah, five years to think about. It. Yeah, I got a little bit of time. I, I don't have anything against it. I I just don't know that I like. Um, I don't feel like super compelled to go through that that process if it's gonna be, um, you know, cumbersome, but but I don't have anything against it either. I, I haven't even, I honestly haven't even looked into it. The only issue that I'm seeing here, uh, at least according to Wikipedia is that foreign nationals who acquire Spanish nationality must renounce their previous nationality unless they are natural born citizens of a Latin American country, Andorra, the Philippines, Equatorial Guinea, or France. So yeah. you may have to, <laughs> may have to renounce the thing about renunciation in, in, in the context of naturalization is that sometimes it's just a symbolic gesture and it has no meaning in the home country. Uh, this is especially true as an American where, um, you cannot renounce American citizenship unless you do it before an American authority, basically in an American consulate. So, when Americans naturalize in a foreign country and a, a lot, a lot of program naturalization programs, they do say that you need to renounce that you have to make like sort of like an oath of renunciation, but the, the U S uh, I guess Supreme court or whatever the U S body has repeatedly stated that that oath has no effect, um, regarding your U S status, unless it was like truly done in front of a u.s authority interesting okay i i literally never knew anything about that but just assumed anything around uh renunciation was probably off the table so that's that's really good for me to know yeah and it it, it makes sense right like if you just go to spain and say i promise to renounce like i promise to be spanish um like th that doesn't mean anything to the u.s right uh, unless unless it's on like a U.S. piece of paper. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think you should, if that's going to be, you know, your first, uh, like your first, uh, foreign passport, your second passport, hundred percent. If, if you're going to be spending time in Spain, yeah. um, there might even be a way to, to, um, uh, uh, speed up that timeline if you have kids in Spain. What 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 is uh your your situation with that by the way? Because you're married, you said right. I think you had you said you have a dog as well. What's uh <laughs> yeah. what's 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 the family unit plan? Yeah, it's a good great question. Um, I uh, on my like personal situation, we yeah, it's my wife and I. We've been married for a while, and we have uh our ten almost ten year old Siberian Husky that's. That's our current kid. Uh, he's close enough to a to a kid in a lot of ways. Uh, he's pretty pretty demanding, um, and we're uh, yeah we're at the stage in life where we're tr- trying to decide if and when the uh, we grow the family. So um, the one thing we have looked into with in like regards to Spain is that it is interesting that in Spain, if the kid is born in Spain, it doesn't automatically give him him or her Spanish citizenship. Um, there is, I don't know the details. I can't go much deeper than that, but that is not, uh, you know, as a foreigner, as a foreign couple, just Mm -hmm. having the kid in Spain does not give the kid any rights to a Spanish passport necessarily. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I I don't know how important that is for others, but I, we, we found that kind of interesting. I think, um, and I think it also makes sense as probably like the number one or number two most visited, most touristed countries on the planet. Uh, which yeah. is Spain, that they would kind of limit that a little bit. I think if you had permanent residency, I think even with your temp, that could be helpful. But I think if you had permanent residency and it was a permanent resident having the kid, uh, I think that that actually changes the dynamic quite a lot and would make it easier. Yeah, that's a good point. That's that's a really good point. Um, so yeah, I'm glad glad you, uh, you, you brought that up. And worst case, for some reason, it seemed not doable. I don't see why not, because I think I think some of the other rules are that you have to like stay in Spanish territory for like, you know, five years before the kid turns 10 or, you know, something random like that. But it sounds like that's probably going to be the case anyway. Like as long as the kid stays there for the first like two years, I, I don't know the exact number, but you can look it up and sort of do some life planning based on that. But, um, <laughs> but I think that would work. And then your other option would be like, you know, you're already in the Eurozone. I'm sure there's some European country where, uh, it is, uh, where it works like that, yeah. um, based on birth. So you could easily just pop over to Poland or, or wherever they do it. And they're still going to be an EU citizen. So it doesn't really matter all that much at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a great point, man. Yeah. I think it's smart to, have, you know, you, times are weird. Like you don't know what the future holds and, it, uh, it, it does not hurt to, to have a second passport if, if you can finagle it. For sure, because your kid will be American regardless, even if they're not born in the U.S. Because you're American, you do what's called a consular report of birth abroad, CRBA. So you're just going to do that form. And if you want them to be American, they'll be American. So there's obviously there's, you know, uh, personal reasons you might want to do in the States so that, you know, your parents can be there and, and the fam and all that. But from a citizenship perspective, there's really no benefit to doing it in the States. And actually it's better to do it, not in the States. It'd be better to do it in Europe. I think one of the other things that's cool, I think I mentioned this on a podcast before, but the best version of um, of American citizenship is an American that was not born in the States. And I'll tell you why. I'm so, curious. 
Okay. So we know that as Americans, we're, we are penalized in a couple different ways. It makes it a little bit more difficult to open international bank accounts. Um, there are certain ways where being an American is a little bit penalized. Um, you know this, right? Because, you know, there's yeah. FACTA and, and some banks don't, don't allow American citizens. And there's other sort of like uh, just different uh, cumbrances that happen sort of similar to that. So, but we know at the end of the day, it's still also good to be American, right? There's obviously benefits, high salaries, still a decent country, blah, blah, blah. So the best version of being an American is an American that wasn't born there. And the reason why is that if you look, let's just say your kid, Chase Jr. is born in Spain, right? We'll call him Cazador. (laughs) You should name your kid like Cazador, which would be like Chaser, (laughs) Chaser in in Spanish. Um, uh, Sorry. So, So let's just say Chase Jr. is born in Spain. If you looked at his passport, it would not say U.S. citizen on it. It would just say Spanish citizen on it, right? Yeah. But yours, if you had a Spanish passport, it's going to say born in USA from America, right? On your Spanish passport. That's what it would say. And so if you went to, let's just say, a European bank and try to open up a bank account and they ask for your passport, you give them your Spanish passport. They look at your birthplace. They go, oh, you're born in the United States. And you go, yeah. And they go, sorry, we don't open accounts for Americans. Hmm. But for him, for Chase Jr., he goes to open the bank account. All it just says is born in Spain, Spanish passport. He can open that bank account much easier. So long story short, the best type of American is like a secret American. Dang, man, that's genius. Oh, man. For, I mean, <laughs> I hope I'm sure people out there listened and learned a lot. I uh, I definitely did. And I've, I've like studied this stuff a lot. Like I'm it's not my skill set. You know, I'm not a I'm not a pro on this on the tax uh, finance stuff uh, at all. But like I, you know, you kind of have to become at least an amateur one when you do this for enough time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, but I just learned a lot. I mean, you got a wealth of knowledge on this stuff. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, being a digital nomad is definitely a rabbit hole, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you de- there's definitely a lot to learn. Yeah, absolutely, man, absolutely. I could I could uh, continue picking your brain on that stuff for a while because it's super super valuable, and um, it's how you make this thing sustainable. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, you know, looking forward to collaborating with you in the future, Chase. Maybe I can uh, hop on an episode of the About Abroad podcast that's chase's podcast that i encourage everyone to go check out yeah man we'll get you on there for sure i'm sure you got a, a story of your own to tell so thanks for <laughs> letting me tell a little bit of mine today and uh talk about espana it was just a lot of fun it's awesome yeah absolutely so tell people uh where they can find you what's your twitter handle uh i'm at uh at dc warrington on twitter and instagram and um that's mostly like a little bit of a little bit of podcast stuff a little bit of personal life stuff and uh on linkedin you can find me chase warrington i talk about a lot of remote work things there my like my day job is head of remote at a remote first company called doist and my job is to kind of like make sure that remote work works (laughs) um and and talk about how we do that uh, as a globally distributed team so um, I talk a lot about that stuff there on on uh, on LinkedIn, and then the podcast is aboutabroad.com. You can find it 
everywhere where you find your podcasts, um, but the website's got all the information um, about abroad.com. The kid from North Carolina, Chase Warrington. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. It was awesome. I had a really good time.